It's the Underpowered Hour. On this week's show, Land Rover plays with hydrogen, a Land Rover market update, Ike and Steve get new cars, Britain's top model, the Land Rover 109 V8, winches, and Ike's favorite body kits. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at thebarriscollection.com or check us out on Instagram at the Barris Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thanks to everyone joining us today. I'm the bias ply to Stephen's radio, the unsynchronized crash box of podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online, Facebook, and Instagram at Pangolin 4x4. All right, Stephen, let's get started. All right, Ike. So uh, this week in the news, I'm sure you read because, man, did every news organization on the planet seem to pick it up. But Land Rover is testing a hydrogen fuel cell Land Rover, and that Land Rover happens to be the new Defender. I did see that. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, sort of a continuation of Land Rover's commitment to alternative fuels and, you know, reducing their carbon footprint. You know, I think that uh, has been really important to them historically. Maybe Land Rovers haven't had the best image when it comes to environmental impact, you know, especially in England, Um, you know, here in the United States where, Every large SUV and pickup has a big, you know, carbon footprint. Maybe it's not such a big deal, but in uh, in Europe, in the United Kingdom, where there's a lot of compact cars, you know, Land Rover kind of stands out as a vehicle that is uh, maybe not as, uh, you know, deserved or undeserved, not as environmentally friendly. And so I think they're doing a lot to uh, to change the that perception with uh more hybrid and electric offerings. And then this, uh, this news about the testing of the hydrogen fuel cell defender, um, certainly a technology which has not seen widespread adoption here in the United States. There's, uh, not that many places to get your hydrogen vehicle refueled. No, it seems to be mostly the, um, kind of industrial, uh, refueling centers for, you know, buses and things like that. But even then there's not a, there's not a ton of that here in LA. There's, I think there's two, places honestly i think there's one for will ferrell to fill up his seven series bmw and maybe one other for those people that have the it was a honda right i believe there was a honda that was a a fuel cell vehicle either a honda or a toyota but anyways one of the two and it came with like free uh hydrogen for for the life of the vehicle or something and i believe there's like one or two fueling stations here in LA so that that those people can use those cars. The interesting thing about hydrogen and something we talked about before with an all electric defender is the idea of being able to go out into the bush or go on a long, you know, adventure overland trip and not have to worry about finding um, a battery fuel source, right? Not worrying about having to find a place to, uh, you know, charge up or put out solar panel or whatever you could conceivably now, I don't know how realistic it is to bring around canisters of compressed hydrogen with you. Um, I think, you know, famously the Hindenburg is a good example of bringing compressed hydrogen around with you, but, um, you know, it's sort of at least 
starts to point in the direction of an alternate fuel, a clean fuel that you could pack extra and bring with you. So if you had a, uh, a long overland trip that you wanted to do, you could potentially pack up some them in some jerry cans of hydrogen i don't know how i don't know how feasible that is i've never actually driven a hydrogen powered car maybe one of our listeners can uh, can chime in and tell us um you know how realistic that is but my impression is that it takes pretty specialized equipment to uh refuel these cars and that's why there aren't uh too many across the united states i think there's something like 30 on the west coast and even fewer on the east coast i actually read an article about one of those Hondas or Hyundai's or whatever yeah, that was a whatever. hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. It was for sale in a part of the country that didn't have any refueling stations. So in order to purchase this vehicle, you'd have to ship it away from where it was to a part of the country that did have refueling stations. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, did it's somebody it, just drive it there and it like ran out of hydrogen. They're like, apparently I'm out. I'm out. I can't apparently that I can't is what it. happened. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then they couldn't they couldn't refuel it. And so they just they put it up for sale or sold it to a car lot or something. And, and it sold for seventy thousand dollars on bring a trailer just recently. Amazing. Oh, man. Amazing turnaround yeah, that, it, yeah, I think that's the bottom. That's the lowest level that they will accept for a car and bring a trailer. Um <laughs> At, at any rate, I think that this technology is uh, not something we will see adapted into the Land Rover product range for for several years. They 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 were talking about, you know, this is a a long term goal for like the t- mid twenty thirties. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because they wanted to. I believe it's like uh, completely off of traditional fuels by the end of 2030 or something right 2038 or 20 somewhere around 2040 they want to be completely free of that so yeah i mean it's a you know just shy of 20 year goal i I think that's reasonable maybe who knows in 20 years maybe the hydrogen um ecosystem is such that uh, that we could do it i mean the funny thing is is because you know hydrogen fuel cells work on the oxygen hydrogen reaction and they produce water right you can also pull those materials together to create hydrogen again not in a portable uh you know sort of environment but hydrogen is simply made by pulling it out of the uh you know out of the natural environment so there is a world uh, theoretically where it might be the perfect overlanding fuel because you can set up your mini hydrogen production plant near a lake or uh something and and actually generate your own hydrogen this is uh this is one of the uh speculative technologies uh in a lot of science fiction and space flight is uh creating hydrogen fuel from water and uh where do you find water in space um you find it on comets and meteors and stuff mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. the comets have uh big ice reserves and so mining comets is like a potential future well, technology if so you're going to mine a comet i think you're going to need a team of the world's best deep core drillers uh, oh of course uh, ben affleck and uh, bruce willis uh, oh. to to get up there and get the job done uh on that note so on that note on the on the fueling note speaking of future fuel and mining uh with bruce willis um recently uh, the epa results for the new v8 defender came out and it's actually more fuel efficient than the wrangler of the similar uh trim level which is which is kind of interesting not 
super big news, just that, again, to Land Rover's, uh, I think, eye on trying to make things more efficient, more environmentally friendly, more sustainable. Um, interesting to see that that big uh, V8, which I believe is a Jaguar sourced V8, um, is uh, is is a better, you know, better, better fuel user. Not by much, but but a little bit uh, than uh, Jeep Wrangler configured similarly. I actually didn't know you could get a Jeep Wrangler with that kind of a motor because the Defender V8 is like a serious. It's like yeah. almost 500 horsepower, so it's a it's a serious car. Some of them are more than 500, I believe. Uh, at any rate, this uh, article had the sort of uh, feel of a celebratory look. We're not last, so it had that sort of feeling to it uh, when reading it, but. Um, you know, uh, close to 20 miles per gallon in a 500 horsepower, you know, 6,000 pound vehicle is not bad. You know, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, not 13, which is what the the Range Rover classics kind of typically. And and my defender, my defender and and the defender is a 90. It's uh, obviously the motor's a little older, um, but yeah, it's it's somewhere from twelve to uh, twelve to thirteen miles a gallon. Or if you're going at highway speed, I can get to Riverside and back on a tank of gas. So it's not it's not that far from where I live. So no, I know no, because I did it a few weeks ago, and it was very disappointing. So uh, Ike, something we've been informally doing uh, now for a few weeks, but I think we're going to kind of formalize it in the the Land Rover market update. Uh, we need like the the ticker tape noise or something. I'm going to have to. It's something. It's a goal for me in the future to get uh, jingles for each I, I, one of our yeah. growing segments. Yeah, a sound effect for each of them. I think we, that's very doable. We come up with segments quicker than we can possibly come up with jingles, though. If anyone, any one of the listeners, uh, is uh, is big into jingle writing, uh, happy to uh, collab with you on that. If you have a YouTube channel where you write hilarious jingles, uh, please reach out to uh, Ike or I, and uh, we'll, we'll work something out because it'd be uh, fantastic. Actually, good time to give a shout out to our. Australian listeners. Uh, I had a conversation with one of our listeners from Australia over the course of the last week saying, well, I don't know how many people listen from Australia. Coincidentally, 8% of our, uh, of our fan base. And I say fan base listeners. Let's not, let's not overextend. I don't know if they're fans. They're listening to the show in Australia. So good day uh, to you all. Um, So as a bit of a Land Rover market update, uh, two big, uh, sales going on one an auction and one a sale of a pretty neat uh, car in my in my opinion as I like collecting Land Rover race cars and there's obviously not a huge segment of that so first up is uh, Ike you're very familiar with the bowler challenge of course of the you know sort of uh, early 2000s yeah you know the this is kind of the Land Rover extension of the classic trials you know um you started with uh, sort of more stock vehicles and those became modified. People put uh, the, the V8s in them. And then, you know, the, the next logical step was space frame. And yeah. so the bowlers came along and built space frame Land Rover race cars and sort of, uh, you know, they were really successful in some of these uh, trials throughout the nineties uh, and early two thousands. And that, that relationship with Land Rover kind of continues to this day. I think uh, Land Rover, now owns the the bowler brand yeah. uh, mr bowler uh passed away his first name escapes me passed away a number of years ago now and yeah and i think that uh, land rover purchased that uh that sort of custom and i don't know is it integrated into the special vehicles team or or something like that maybe 
I don't know the answer to that. That would be a, a great question for our good friend, Michael Bishop. It would be. And soon, soon we will have Michael Bishop on the show. Now that we think we've worked out having people on the show, uh, we had to, uh, you know, just uh, adjust the timing uh, a little bit of the uh, of the crank on uh, the uh, internet machine. And uh, now it seems to be running well. Um, so the Bowler Challenge Defender, uh, that can be had on a website called uh, PistonHeads.com. Uh, 50,000 pounds for that. And of course, it is not yet legal for import into the United States. Uh, and I don't think it's quite legal for import into Canada yet either. Or I'm Well, well. Right. Now there cool. is a there is a loophole for race cars, and oh. this would probably fall under that loophole. And so I do believe that you could import it, although I don't believe you could license it and uh, drive it on the street. Right. Um, you could uh, bring it in as a specialist exhibition race car. Interesting. And- now, yeah, I don't think you'd want to drive this particular car on the road all that much. Anyways, it has it is a race car. Um, it has uh, all the appropriate race car accoutrement. It's not something you'd want to take a rock crawling uh, necessarily it really is a a high speed uh, desert racing probably uh, for us over here or something like that at least a rally style uh, racing car but uh, super cool and uh, at 50k uh 50,000 pounds so you know shy of 70,000 US dollars not not a terrible deal they are very specialty cars and and are super cool so a must have for any Land Rover race car collector it is uh it is not as desirable in my mind as the Gerard Depardieu Dakar rally race defender. No, no car is to be fair. Uh, It is. That is the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate in Land Rover rally vehicles. So on the, uh, on the market update side, um, the Haynes international motor museum in the UK uh, is putting their, I believe, entire collection up for auction. And as part of that collection, there is a whole uh, host of Land Rover vehicles. Some some cool ones. They have a Series 3 ambulance, and uh, they have a 100, or actually it's a 2A ambulance, I'm sorry. And they have uh, a 109 V8. Uh, they have, which we're going to talk about in a minute, um, they have a you know a number of of cars that are in in somewhat less than museum quality. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what their collection uh, is is really all about. But some interesting cars, some some neat ones. Those ambulances are cool. Yeah, you know, I think when a lot of museums kind of close their doors, uh, the the cream of the crop, so to speak, uh, often goes to you know people who work at the museum, donors, these sorts of things. And so when a lot of museums have their auctions. You know, some of those best vehicles maybe don't make uh, make the auction. They're sold in advance of the auction. But I believe Haynes has said that they're no longer going to be printing new Haynes manuals. And uh, it's due to a lot of the proprietary nature of car repair um, on newer model vehicles. You know, you can't just like, I think they used to brag that they would get a get a car take it all apart put it back together and then write the manual that was kind of one of their advertising um points is that they would they would do that for each of the manuals that they would wrote they wrote and then it became it then their new manuals became kind of um almost uh you know entertainment like they had a haynes manual for the star trek 
or Starship Enterprise. Yes, they have or, worked with uh, a shuttle. Um, yeah, yeah, space number, shuttle, these sorts of, of things. things. And in fact, I had one for my Humvee. They had a military Humvee Haynes manual that was literally, it was like a, it was like a documentary uh, coffee table book. For the, It didn't tell you at all how to maintain uh, a Humvee because anybody with any sense wouldn't have one. Um, and so maintaining it, you know, you've got a whole host of other problems outside of just maintaining it but right. uh but yeah it's interesting because i thought that was the way the brand would go is into the more entertainment and i always think it's hilarious i think the the haynes manual for the starship enterprise is fantastic um and things like that i think people people liked it and and i just think that the novelty of that now is somewhat lost because there's a generation of people that have never known a haynes manual as the the car repair book it has totally. been you know something new i've i have got one for my ford old ford ranger i had one for my volkswagen vanagon i had one for uh i think for my three series been one of my three series bmws they're great you know they're they're a neat book yeah it's something you could keep in the car and uh if if you have the, a car and you don't care for it enough to uh shell out the money for the factory service manual it's a it's a good budget uh, manual, you know, I think a third of it was like the same in every manual. It like described like what a dirty spark plug looks like and yeah. like, you know, some sort of basic mechanic type stuff. Um, but uh, certainly generations of people have uh, relied on those to uh, uh, shade tree mechanic their vehicle. And uh, it's a little sad to see that they're not going to be producing manuals and uh, that they're closing their museum sort of at yeah. end of an era a little bit. It is. It's too bad. But, uh, you know, all things must, uh, you know, must continue. And uh, yeah, you know, the British Heritage Museum is still there and has some truly uh, significant cars at uh, at Gaydon. And uh, of course, you can get your, you know, factory records for your cars there. Uh, if they will ship it, their shipping system is broken right now. I tried to order a certificate the other day and uh, the, they, they can't ship anything anywhere right now. They're it's it's it broke it. It's broke it. Yeah, it's broke it. It broke it. Uh, yeah. the, the shipping department was located uh, in Eastern Europe, so that's broken now. But uh, on to uh, some new cars in your fleet, uh, Ike. What uh, what have you picked up in the very uh, very recently? Well, uh, last weekend uh, we added a 1960 Land Rover 88 station wagon, and this particular vehicle kind of has the classic expedition prep you know features yeah. it has the koenig crank driven winch which mm. uh you know we're going to talk about winches uh here in a little bit and then again in a future episode but uh that's uh that's definitely a, a cool piece of kit allows you to use the overdrive and have a mechanically driven winch mm -hmm. um so that's kind of neat and then this one had some you know jerry can mounts in the front and uh you know sort of the uh, Kodiak heater and a few other things that were special add-on features. This is a car. This was the first Land Rover that I saw when I uh, moved to Oregon. It was in a uh, relatively small desert town called Burns, Oregon. Mm. And I drove by it and I stopped and I asked the guy, hey, you know, is that something you would sell? This was about 15 years ago. And he said, oh, no, no, no. My son's going to fix that up. And then like, you know, maybe four or five years went by and I, I stopped and I was like, hey, you want to sell that? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. My daughter's going to fix that up. And then, uh, you know, stopped again another five years and he was like, ah, I'm going to fix it up. And then another five years, it was like, you're going to fix it up. 
So, uh, so I, I managed to uh, finally bring that one home and we, we did get it running. So it's already, uh, running and it's, uh, you know, typical desert car rust free. So I'm looking forward nice. to getting that one back on the road. Does need a lot of work still, but, uh, at least, at least it runs not rusty. So pretty cool car. And then the other one, uh, was a, uh, one Oh seven station wagon that, uh, you know, I have a soft spot for that particular model. They have some cool <laughs> features. We should do a uh, a Britain's top model on the yep. 107 wagon for sure. Yeah. Oh, without question. Without and then question. Uh, I believe you also have a, a new addition to your collection. I did. So, uh, so as I think I may have talked about before, my very first Land Rover in uh, that I owned myself. My parents owned one of the first. Land Rover Discoveries in Canada, but um, my first Land Rover was a 107 uh, V8, which is, uh, or sorry, a 109 V8, which is uh, which is more sort of the uh, colloquial term for that is the Stage One uh, V8. It's a Series Three Land Rover made at the absolute end of the uh, what the was the zenith, the zenith, if you will, of the uh, of the Land Rover series production before it became. Uh, what was the Land Rover 9110, the quail sprung years before Defender. Um, and yeah, I managed to uh, find one. A gentleman uh, down in uh, Florida had one uh, for sale. And as my original uh, stage one, unfortunately, uh, I got it in you know high school and had to uh, had to sell it because it was pretty far gone when I got it. And unfortunately, it was broken down for parts and sold as little pieces. And uh, so unfortunately, that one will never come back. But I have uh, I've always said if a stage one comes up for sale somewhere in uh, a reasonable uh you know distance from me uh and i guess for it is reasonable enough that i would have to purchase it so uh so i did in fact do that and it is on its way from florida here in the next couple of weeks so looking yeah, forward to that it's a nice looking vehicle i saw the photos of it and uh i know you've been looking for a stage one congratulations those are uh pretty cool vehicles you know they're definitely the missing link between the series and the defender cars and they have sort of classic uh, series styling. And I, I like the front end treatment, you know, with the metal grill, maybe a little yeah. bit more than I like the Defender front end treatment with mm -hmm. the same sort of mm -hmm. flush front end. So I, mm -hmm. I do like well, those I, cars. Yeah, I think the stage one, yeah, the metal grill evokes more of the series look than mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. the plastic louvered grill from the '90s and and the Defender, the '91 10 and Defender. Um, but yeah, and that actually brings up uh, a perfect segue into uh, Britain's top model for this week, which just so happens to be how convenient that it is, in fact, the Land Rover 109 V8, almost like we had planned it. Amazing, um, amazing. I know. So as you know, Ike, the uh, the 109 V8, as it is known officially, or even just the Land Rover V8, as it's known officially, because there was really only, some will say, about four 88-inch models that were produced. Um, and two of those, we know for sure, are in the Dunsfold collection uh, over in the UK. Um, this particular model, the, the 109 V8, was never produced for North America. That was after Land Rover had already left the North American market. That being said, there are left-hand cars. Mine is a left-hand car. Um, that were produced for Germany and, and other left-hand uh, countries and, and sold very well there. Um, it was produced between 79 and about 1985, give or take, kind of hard to say, as all things Land Rover, exactly when those last ones rolled out of the factory. But essentially, the Stage 1 is a 109 Series 3 right up to uh, the firewall for all intents and purposes. Ahead of the bulkhead, you have uh, what is the motor out of the 
uh, Range Rover, the three and a half liter carbureted, dual carbureted V8 out of the uh, out of the Range Rover, and the LT95 gearbox uh, out of that same Range Rover, a four speed uh, the four speed gearbox. So essentially, it's kind of a 101 forward control uh, in that it has sort of the same, almost the same running gear as 101 forward control, and that then drives back to the bigger axles. And because of the LT95, it's the only series Land Rover that is permanent four-wheel drive, which is kind of a neat, uh, kind of a neat feature. Because after that, it was no longer series Land Rover; it was then a a ninety-one ten uh, or uh, or then obviously into the Defenders. And so uh, it was the first permanent four-wheel drive, and it was uh, obviously the first V8 car. Technically, the first four-wheel drive. Land Rover permanent four wheel drive Land Rover was the eighty inch right because it had the tractor joints and the, I guess that's the free wheel gearbox. So I guess that's uh, a good point. That's not good to be point. too much of a stickler, but uh, they did have that feature way, 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 way back when. But uh, yeah, certainly this was the first you know production series car with CVs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so it had the the constant velocity joints in the front axle. Correspondingly, the front axle had the uh, different um, bushings and bearings in the, Mm -hmm. the swivel housings. And it also had the, uh, uh, 354 gear ratio differentials. Um, I had a, I want to say it was a 77, Mm -hmm. um, stage one V8, uh, Java green three door had a hard top, Mm -hmm. hard top, hard top was yellow. Ooh, and uh, had a Java green, the Java green, <laughs> Java green body. I don't know. Was it, it lo- previously owned by uh, by the Joker? I, I think it was like a like a towing service oh, or yeah, like yeah, a, a breakdown or recovery firm. Yeah, it yeah. didn't actually have a tow truck like boom on it, mm-hmm. but it had this utility hardtop with van sides and a big yellow stripe, and so the very very top was also Java green. Mm-hmm. I have to dig up a picture of that. It was a, a striking vehicle. Also had a pickup cab that was original paint that came with mm-hmm. it, so it had two tops, and uh, it, it was definitely a, a pretty fun vehicle. It had um, you know. It had like 20 more horsepower than the standard Land Rover. So <laughs> yeah, it right, felt, yeah. felt pe- I mean, that's a lot when you're talking about 77 versus, yep. you know, almost a hundred. That's a, uh, that's a big difference. So it's a major, it, a major jump though, from four cylinders to eight cylinders and really not a significant amount more power, 90 and change horsepower oh, <laughs> in the, uh, in the stage one V8. So, uh, you know. And I, I think all of the stage ones came with the Salisbury rear axle, mm-hmm. which was a kind of an upgrade that the series threes got over the, the latest two A's. Um, so the LT 95 was another big change on this model. And yep. uh, anybody who's driven one, it's kind of a clunky truck mm-hmm. four speed, but definitely probably the strongest gearbox that ever came in the series Land Rovers mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. fully synchronized four speed integral casing with the transfer case so it's like one big giant aluminum casing mm-hmm. and then it has a, a vacuum operated uh center differential lock mm-hmm. um so that was another feature that went along with the, the full-time four-wheel drive is having a center differential lock yeah it's an interesting you know from a hardware standpoint really interesting car um a lot of people think that the the stage one name comes from the sort of first stage to moving towards a v8 powered utility land rover but uh there's there's differing 
reports uh, on that. But the the other story that I like, whether it's true or not, I think it, it may be, is that it was actually the first stage of investment in British Leyland to sort of get things back on track in uh, producing a vehicle that could compete with the Japanese uh, 4x4s of the day. Of course, Land Cruisers and things like that were becoming very competitive against the Series 3 Land Rover, which at that time, you know, when you think of 1979, having a Series 3 Land Rover, uh, that technology was starting to look pretty antiquated um, against some of the things that were coming out of uh, Japan. And uh, again, this was not competing in the North American market, but certainly all over Europe, uh, I think Land Rover was really starting to lose ground. So the Margaret Thatcher government made a huge investment in the British auto industry. um, And as British Leyland was basically the British auto industry at the time, uh, this was the first stage of that investment. So uh, it was also the first step towards uh, making a V8 version uh, of the Land Rover. But the 90s and 110s, famously, uh, would uh, ship with the a modified uh, diesel motor that was previously available in the Series Three, so not a not a significant uh, stage uh, in that. And the Series Three's uh, the 109 V8 also is a leaf sprung car; it's not a quail sprung car. So um, the 90 and 110 Land Rovers are a, a pretty major departure from the. Uh, from the stage one. The stage one has way more to do with a series three, uh, of which it is, than it does with a, with a Land Rover 90, uh, 110, or of course the later Defender. So interesting car yeah, though. It, it's, it is an interesting car and it is kind of that missing link, you know, because it has the drivetrain that was incorporated into the 110 and then it has, uh, the, uh, you know, leaf springs and, and traditional bodywork of a series three. So there you go. It is if if you have to have uh every car from series one through Defender, you have to find yourself a You have to. You, you absolutely have to. have to. You're honor bound by the by the Land Rover code to find yourself a uh a stage one. So uh today a quick uh tip top uh tech tip uh like uh, around winches. Like you said earlier, I think we are going to do a whole episode, a special, a Christmas special, if you will, um, on uh, winches because winches and Land Rovers, so synonymous, of course, famous winches like the winches we've talked about in the past that winch you up dams and things like that. And of course, all of the PTO driven uh, winches, which we briefly touched on in our uh, extremely well received in Australia uh, winch uh, or PTO episode, rather. Um, but winches, I talked to me a little bit, like you were saying, your newest uh, car features uh, a pretty cool winch. Uh, what, what makes winches? interesting so far as a Land Rovering uh, and you are concerned? Well, you know, Land Rover is an off-road vehicle and anytime you're off the pavement and the uh, road surface or lack of road surface is uh, uneven or loose, there's a chance the vehicle could get stuck and, you know, winch is useful for that, you know. In addition to that, you know, sort of traditionally the Land Rover was a utility vehicle that was used for work. And so, pulling things to the vehicle was also important. So, you know, pulling logs towards the vehicle or um, pulling equipment, uh, you know, getting something, moving anything from one Mm -hmm. place to another. And so the Land Rover uh, has always had a winch as an option pretty much uh, from the beginning, you know, the, from the earliest vehicles with the capstan uh, aero parts winches to the latest Defender, there's almost always been a winch option and there are a multitude of winch options in between. 
and they kind of uh, fall into the you know three major categories which are electric pto and hydraulic mm -hmm. and uh the land rover you know series cars they have a lot of pto configurations and so there were tons of different winches some of them are utility winches massive you know, impractical things for laying cable and, you know, doing pipeline work and that sort of thing. And then some of them are, you know, self-recovery winches that we're more familiar with, you know, the, the Warren 8274 or the, you know, Koenig Ramsey, you know, there's, there's a, a tons and tons of different models, Mayflower, um, Bamford Smith, you know, it'd probably take 10 minutes to, to run down the list of, uh, of winches that have been made for Land Rovers. There's yep. so many, but, um, yeah, I think we should do a, a full episode on, on winches and, uh, how they fit into the Land Rover story for sure. Well, I think we will for sure, because uh, like you've said, I mean, it's such an iconic, uh, piece on the front of a given car, the series trucks, obviously having a little pocket in front of the, uh, radiator that made it very convenient to, uh, to fit a PTO winch there, or even, um, the competition vehicles, the camel trophy trucks and their use of, you know, both the Warren sport winches, as well as, um, the super winch, the famous Husky super winch, uh, uh, the big red unit that's on the front of uh, of some of the uh, discoveries that could you know pull your house off of its foundation if necessary. But uh, yeah, so we'll do that in an upcoming episode. Um, we'll focus on winches, and I know it's something that a lot of the uh, the listeners are into and interested in. And so uh, you know, we'll service that. So uh, last up for today, another new segment. Uh, again, anybody interested in jingle creation for new segments, please drop us a line. The Land Rover faux pas, or what really grinds Ike's gears, and uh, and mine as well. Hey, I in this case certainly I don't always agree, but when I do agree, I agree vehemently. Um, con body kits. Yeah, I, yeah. Take, it, this take is, it away. Take this, it away. <laughs> this one is one that really bothers me. The con body kit. You know, um, I think there is a segment of the Land Rover. Uh, ownership that that likes you know sort of uh, techie tactical uh, look to their vehicle you mm -hmm. know uh, perfect paint um, and then a lot of uh, you know hood bulges and mm -hmm. scoops and mm -hmm. you know sort of sporty ephemera that in this case doesn't really have any functional purpose yeah and I, it's any real along your dash maybe you know. Yeah, I, I think that's what really uh, bothers me about it is it's it's purely a cosmetic accessory. And, uh, you know, it's it's not really that easy on the eyes, in my personal opinion. Um, you know, everybody's got their own, you know, what they yeah. like and what they don't like. Yeah. But essentially, the gist of it for those that you don't that don't know, um, is it's a plastic, uh, or as they say, composite oh, yeah. body kit that widens the track. It doesn't widen the track. It widens the body yeah. of the vehicle. So uh, it, I think it's three inches on either side. Something like that. It's it's yeah. significant. Makes, it makes the car about six inches wider, I'm going to yeah. say. Yeah. And it it's, it's sort of faceted and it has little uh, areas for fasteners. So you, you would drill into the, the sheet metal of the car mm -hmm. and attach this plastic body work over the top. So, uh, if you, if you do that to the entire length of the car, 
the the doors won't open, right? Right. Because yeah, the doors right. the doors can't really be of course the middle door an extra thickness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, without you know you'd have to add that thickness to the inside yes, rather than and the outside. You wouldn't be able to hinge the doors because they would run into the body where yeah no. It's... So so what they've done in this particular case is that they they have not widened the area where the doors sit. So from the front of the car to the firewall is three inches wider and from the door to the back of the car is three inches wider and then there's a gap where this is a normal width right where it's just doors it's where just it's just land rover's doors it's just doors and you're like it definitely looks like something is is missing there like, like who stole the pieces from the doors and uh in the case of the in the case of the the four door or five door depending on how you want to say it uh, 110 models They've kind of uh, made that delineation not exactly at the door opening. It's actually a little ahead of the door opening, kind of maybe right around where the door handle would be. Mm -hmm. And so you have this chunk of plastic that is screwed to the door that's like three inches thick and maybe five inches long. And it's like a little it's like a little Lego brick (laughs) that's like stuck to the side of the car. It, it in no way enhances the appearance of the car and, and functionally does nothing. Can you potentially make it into a little, like, could you put a sandwich in there or something? Like just a, oh, like a little a, stash box, a little road a, snack. I don't a know. A burrito just, holster. Ooh, yeah. That would be nice. It would uh, nicely uh, complement the, I wouldn't have a problem. I wouldn't have a problem with it if it was a burrito holster. I'm all about, yeah. I'm all about that, but yeah. uh, it's it more did, likely knowing the, the core clientele there, it's more likely a holster for throwing stars or something. Cause that seems to be the kind of person that would a 13 year old boy, a 13 year old boy. Exactly. The owner of a throwing star and the owner of a conned body kit uh, defender probably indexes quite high. I think the overlap there is pretty much a hundred percent. So, uh, I think it's about, uh, $6,000 yeah. to do this. Plus the, the paint work and all the associated stuff to get this kit for your, defender in case you would like to do you this would like to, to do car. that do you know if they offer it uh pre-rusty can you get a rusty version of it i think you have to paint it so you could actually paint no, you it could, you could you make could it, paint a rusty it rusty version. well i may be in then you know if i could get it pre-rusted it is sort of a motif that i'm going for so well i uh, on that note uh i think there's uh you know we've lost that huge portion of our audience that are a con body kit owners uh so uh, well before you know, we're done we're gonna alienate everybody so yeah, we'll we're, start we're here slowly making our way down the list uh, start there Whatever your specific Land Rover niche is, don't worry. We'll get to it and make fun of it uh, in all due time. Uh, So that's it for this week, Ike. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, Good luck installing your Con Body Kit, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. I'm looking forward to it, Stephen. Take care. Underpowered Hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss. Consider supporting the show through our Patreon, and when you do, you'll be given access to exclusive content and Underpowered Hour merch. Want even more Underpowered Hour? Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 